Hello, my name is Barbara, and this is Neuroscience, Amateur Hour. Welcome back. Thank you so much for tuning back in. Today, I want to chat with you about America's favorite pastime, football, and the traumatic brain injuries that players can incur. So before I delve deep, I would like to make a disclaimer that I am a researcher and not a medical professional. If you feel that you are having any health or mental issues, please, please contact a healthcare professional. Cool. So let's get into it. It's a common sight on Sunday afternoons. The snacks are gathered. The couch cushions are plumped. The beer is cold. Across the screen, 22 people in tight white pants and a truly incredible amount of padding trot onto the field. The stands are filled with cheering spectators and cheerleaders shake their pom-poms from the sidelines. The stadiums are filled with raw aggression, seemingly modern-day gladiators before the masses. For those of you who aren't sports fans or are not from the United States, football has very little to do with connecting a foot to a ball. The fundamental rules of the game are thus. Two teams of 11 players face off against each other on a rectangular field with large goalposts on either side. The offensive offensive team, which is in possession of the ball, attempts to get it to the other end of the field by throwing it or passing it from player to player without dropping it. The defensive team tries to stop their attempts and take control of the ball for themselves. This goes back and forth across the field until someone gets the ball to the other side and scores a touchdown in the end zone, scoring six points. If the offensive team is close enough to the goalposts, they will attempt a field goal, where a kicker kicks the ball through the goalposts, collecting three points. Additionally, the defensive team can gain two points if they tackle a member of the offensive team with the ball in their own end zone. Games are about an hour long, divided into four quarters of 15 minutes each. They're typically played in a series of downs or individual plays of short duration. Now, if you can't guess, in order to stop the opposing team from getting the ball to the end zone and scoring a touchdown, there's quite a bit of full contact that occurs between players. Look up any high school or college game and you will see that football is chock full of people ramming into each other, tackling each other, falling on the field, banging their heads, and generally colliding in all manner of ways. Any way you can think of. I'm, I'm positive that a footballer has probably hurt themselves that way before. So to combat the inevitable injuries, football players do wear a lot of padding. They've got shoulder pads, arm pads, elbow pads, butt pads, back plates, rib protection, girdles, gotta protect those, mouth guards, and helmets. Now the helmets themselves are honestly feats of innovation. They need to be able to block both linear force and twisting forces from impacts. One new helmet technology is called Multidirectional Impact Protection System, or MIPS. Sounds an awful lot like NIPS, but MIPS. So manufacturers have added a molded plastic layer between the hard outer shell of the helmet and the interior padding. 
This allows the plastic layer and the outer shell to rotate independently, reducing the strain on the player's head and brain. Now, after denying the severity of player injuries for years, and I mean years, pretty much up until like 2013, the National Football League, the NFL, has now shifted gears and is leading the charge for better helmets and improved player safety. In October of last year, they announced the results of the $3 million Helmet Challenge, a competition designed to accelerate helmet performance and safety for NFL players. After two years of work, 13 teams made up of biomechanical engineers, material scientists, and current manufacturers submitted their prototypes for testing and judging. Three teams from the United States and Canada were collectively awarded the grant money to continue developing their products, which combine cool new materials and designs to absorb the shock and generally be more comfortable for players. Because if you're going to go out on a field and hit a bunch of people, your helmet better be comfortable and solidly on there. So despite all of these efforts to improve you know, player safety and improve the protection for players, it's not a secret that footballers are prone to concussions. A concussion is a traumatic brain injury caused by a bump or jolt to the brain that effectively causes your brain to jiggle back and forth inside your skull. Imagine your head is a raw egg and your brain is an egg yolk. Shake that egg back and forth and the yolk will hit the shell inside the egg. Pretty much exactly how your brain would hit the skull if it was jiggled back and forth. The exact mechanisms of concussion are largely unknown. Some researchers theorize that concussions could cause neurons to literally tear apart. But more importantly, jiggling of the brain produces disordered metabolic cascades or biochemical injuries of some sort. When you incur a concussion, uh, neurotransmitters are released at random across the brain and neurons will fire haphazardly. In order to restore balance, the sodium-potassium pump that is situated across all neurons and uh, functions to maintain a specific membrane potential starts working overtime, which you know makes sense. If, if everything's been disrupted, you know it's, it has to work really hard to get it back to baseline. And because it starts working overtime, it starts consuming massive amounts of ATP, which is just the energy of the body. This results in a dramatic jump in glucose metabolism and then a subsequent drop and energy crisis in the brain. Concussions are often accompanied by headaches, nausea, vomiting, balance problems, sluggishness, confusion, or memory problems, or even generally feeling more emotional. While deeply concerning, most concussion symptoms are temporary and will dissipate within one to two weeks of adequate rest. So fear not if you've ever had a concussion. However, there are a number of more severe neurological and psychological disorders that can occur post-concussion. One of these is second impact syndrome, which is where the brain will swell rapidly shortly after a person incurs a second concussion within a short amount of time of the first. This event is very rare, but it is also most often fatal. Uh, some people also have concussion <laughs> I broke symptoms that may persist for weeks or months, and some may develop post-traumatic epilepsy or seizures. 
There have also been reports of psychological changes with people developing depression, anxiety, etc. after a concussion, which makes sense given that your brain is literally being shaken back and forth like a martini and your brain is trying to restore balance and it might not always be successful. For your average football player, a concussion is a semi-regular occurrence. In the NFL specifically, there are approximately 140 concussions reported per season, and it is estimated that at least one player on a team suffers a concussion every five games. Please note, there may be more that are unreported. Now, as I mentioned before, concussions on their own are not big deals. A few weeks of downtime and your poor bruised brain is back to normal without any long-term consequences. But the, freq- <laughs> but the prevalence and the frequency of traumatic brain injuries poses a much larger problem. Specifically, I'm talking about chronic traumatic encephalopathy. Oh god, I'm going to try again. Okay. Encephalopathy. I'm going to Pause and Google how to say it. Hold on. Okay. Encephalopathy. 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 There we go. Uh, so chronic, tra- chronic traumatic encephalopathy. I don't think I can say it. I don't think I'm physically capable of saying this word. Encephalopathy. I'm going to call it CTE from now on. Uh, CTE is a rare condition used to describe brain degeneration likely caused by repeated head traumas. That means that over time, your neurons die and certain regions of your brain shrink. The diagnosis for this condition is usually done during an autopsy, where the physician looks at thin slices of the brain to determine, when the, to determine whether any regions of the brain have shrunk or degenerated. It cannot be diagnosed during life, except maybe in individuals with high-risk exposures, such as football players, people who play other full-contact sports, such as boxing, where they, they often get hit in the head, and military personnel who are exposed to explosive blasts. So why has CTE been linked specifically to football players beyond the fact that it's a full-contact sport? I found this really, really amazing paper from the Journal of the American Medical Association published in 2017 with a mind-boggling 19 authors. Citing that was painful. Uh, From the Boston University School of Medicine in Massachusetts. The purpose of the paper was to determine whether players of American football could be at increased increased risk of long-term neurological conditions, specifically CTE. Before I get into the truly what-the-fuck Results, please note that this data was gathered from a convenient sample of deceased football players who had donated their brains for research. So it's not exactly a random sample of football players, but people who may have had neurological issues and played football and were like, there's probably something wrong with my head. I should donate my brain to science. Okay, so of the 202 deceased football player brains, researchers observed that. 177 of them were neuropathologically diagnosed with CTE. That is a staggering 87%. Again, please note that that doesn't mean that 87% of football players have CTE. The researchers found that the severity of CTE was distributed across the highest level of play, with all three former high school players in the sample having mild pathology 
and the college, semi-professional, and professional players having severe pathology. Of the participants with mild CTE, 96% had behavioral or mood symptoms, 85% had cognitive symptoms, and 33% had dementia. Of the, pa- of the patients with severe CTE, the numbers were similar, with a crazy 85% having dementia. Protect your brains, y'all. That's all I have to say. So let's get into some of the symptoms and pathologies. I want to clarify that CTE is not well understood, so a lot of this information comes with the asterisk research in progress. This disorder is often characterized by cognitive impairment, such as difficulty thinking, memory loss, and problems planning, organizing, and executing tasks. In addition, it's characterized by behavioral changes, such as impulsive behavior and increased aggression. Keep that last one in mind, because I recently came across a really interesting article on this subject matter that I'll I'll bring up towards the end of the podcast episode. (laughs) Additionally, CTE, uh, individuals with CTE may have mood disorders, such as depression, anxiety, substance misuse, and suicidal ideation, as well as present with motor issues, including Parkinson's disease. In addition, the, (laughs) the increasing attention to CTE has sparked a hunt for biomarkers that could predict the emergence of the disease. One such biomarker is tau protein. Tau is a microtubule-associated protein that lines the inside of nerve cells and stabilizes them. Uh, It's also incredibly important for nutrient delivery across the cell. As the brain deteriorates, it starts to build up huge amounts of the protein tau which could become hyperphosphorylated and aggregate in something called neurofibrillary tangles. These neurofibrillary... I've been having a lot of trouble today. Neurofibrillary tangles, or NFTs, cluster around the small blood vessels of the cortex, which in turn disrupts nutrient supply to brain cells, eventually killing them. Now, if all of this sounds vaguely familiar, it might be because CTE has a very similar pathology to Alzheimer's disease. The biggest difference between the two diseases is in the distribution of the tangles. In CTE, the tangles are predominantly in the more superficial layers of the cortex, or closer to the surface, whereas in patients with Alzheimer's disease, the tangles are predominantly in the deeper layers of the cortex. They also present in slightly different parts of the brain. So an important question is, are Alzheimer's and CTE distinct diseases, or are they somehow related? One paper published in 2017 out of West Virginia University School of Medicine looked at the case studies of three patients, one with only Alzheimer's pathology, one with only CTE pathology, and one with both. They observed that while the diseases had distinguishing distinguishing features, they also had a lot of shared features. At the end of the paper, they raised some interesting questions. Does having CTE advance the development of Alzheimer's? Does CTE somehow relate to aging? Are you more likely to, you know, is your CTE more likely to get worse as you age? While I'm not normally one to leave on a cliffhanger, unfortunately, we simply don't know the answers to these questions. The intricacies of these diseases are many and complicated, and I would argue we need another 10 years of research in this area to truly understand what's going on. I want to leave off on a morbid but interesting note. 
Trigger warning? Murder. Moiter. I'm a huge crime junkie, so this part speaks to, like, a special part of my deep, dark soul. So, in 2020, Netflix came out with a documentary called Killer Inside, The Mind of Aaron Hernandez, which examined how Aaron Hernandez went from NFL player to convicted killer, and the possible role of CTE in his actions. On June 26, 2013, the nation awoke to the sight of Aaron Hernandez, a man who had been a beloved New England patriot, even making it to the Super Bowl, being escorted out of his house with his wrists in in cuffs. Later that day, he was charged with the murder of Odin Lloyd, a semi-pro football player who at the time of his death was dating Shania Jenkins, the sister of the fiancé of Aaron Aaron Hernandez. Lloyd had been found shot to death in an industrial park, which was just one mile away from Hernandez's house, just a week earlier. On June 16th, technically the early hours of June 17th, Lloyd was a passenger in Hernandez's car, confirmed through text with his sister. The two men were apparently in an argument over a bag of marijuana, and the keys to a car that had been rented to Hernandez were found in Lloyd's pocket. Prosecutors believed that Lloyd had said something to Hernandez that had destroyed the player's trust in Lloyd, and given Hernandez a motive to kill. During his trial, Hernandez was also tied to the deaths of two men shot in Gainesville, Florida in 2007, and the shooting and deaths of Daniel Diabro and Safira Furtado. Eventually, it was found that Hernandez had likely nothing to do with the former shooting incident and was acquitted in the double homicide of Diabro and Furtado. Although he pled not guilty to the death of Odin Floyd, he was found guilty of first-degree murder in 2015 and sentenced to life in prison without parole. In 2017, Hernandez was found dead in his cell by suicide. He was posthumously diagnosed with stage 3 of 4 of CTE. Hernandez had had two confirmed concussions since he started playing football at a young age, but took, honestly, God knows how many blows to the head over his career. Researchers have suggested that CTE may result in poor judgment, lack of impulse control, aggression, paranoia, anger, emotional volatility, and rage behavior. Dr. Sam Gandhi of Mount Sinai, who is a professor of Alzheimer's disease research, and a professor of neurology and psychiatry stated, it is impossible to look at the severity of CTE and Mr. Hernandez's brain and not think that that had had a profound effect on his behavior. While his injuries are no excuse for his despicable behavior as a murderer, they may provide some explanation for why. People close to Hernandez and those who observed him in prison said he suffered from migraines and memory loss, common symptoms of advanced CTE. As always, it is impossible to say that Aaron Hernandez's career in the NFL led to severe CTE that eventually led him to take that life. But it cannot be disputed that severe brain traumas from full-contact sports have been linked to CTE. CTE has in turn been linked to a variety of behavioral and psychological symptoms and results in brain degeneration. All I can leave you with is protect your brains, guys. They're precious. A few too many bumps, and your brain might start eating itself. (laughs) Well, not eating itself, but, you know, shrinking. But that is a bite-sized overview of the neuroscience of America's favorite pastime and traumatic brain injuries. 
I hope that you enjoyed the episode and you learned something new. I've cited all my relevant sources and papers in the show notes, and you should keep an eye out on Instagram for some cool figures I think are pertinent. Please rate, review, and please, 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 please subscribe. And if you have any questions, comments, concerns, queries, or complaints, please email me at neuroscienceamateurhour at gmail.com or DM me at neurosciencemateurhour on Instagram. This podcast is available on pretty much any platform I can think of, so please recommend it to your friends and loved ones. Also, if you have something you really want to learn about, please contact me, and you'll probably see an episode about it soon. Happy researching, and I hope to see you again.